Welcome to MBA in a Day, a brief, deep, and easy to understand place to get and apply important business concepts and principles, the same that are taught in top tier MBA programs. I'm Professor Strausser, and in the 25 years that I've been teaching in elite MBA programs, I've noticed how many doctors, attorneys, engineers, scientists, folks that are already well educated, already smart, but may not have had the kind of business training that they need to be successful in their business or practice. So whether you're listening to this in your car, while commuting to or from work, on the beach, or just want to learn about business, let's get started with this episode's exploration of critical business concepts. So much of marketing is about trying to create a brand. And we did talk about the idea of branding before, and the fact is that by developing a good brand, you are taking a lot of the decision-making, making it easier for people to make decisions about your product or service down the road because they, they know you through, the, through your brand. And so somebody, a company has a strong brand value, the customers are less likely to want to do a lot of shopping. They are more likely to rely on either what they know about your brand or what they believe to be your brand based on your marketing. So branding is all about trying to, in a sense, create a monopoly in favor of your product or service. When we're doing a good job of branding, we want people to think that there's nothing else, that your product or service is the only choice. So we have a monopoly on uh, that particular customer. Obviously, it's a free market. Customers can pick almost anything, uh, except when it comes to maybe your electric utility company. Monopolies are something that marketers are trying to create through branding. What we're doing is we are wrapping our product or service in value, in things that make our product or service somehow different and more valuable and therefore more desirable. We take a basic product that has a, a core benefit related to it. Give me a basic pro- some kind of basic product that everybody uses. Shoes. Okay. The basic product is a shoe. What's the core benefit of a shoe, a pair of shoes? Not much benefit to one shoe, a pair of shoes. Protect feet. Protect your feet. Yeah. Um, make it comfortable to walk. Make it easier to walk. But pretty much, that's the basic, right? When we are marketers and we're developing a brand, that's not enough. We want to do something that makes a consumer want our shoes instead of somebody else's. We also have an expected product. What would be an expected shoe? I mean, if somebody were to buy a pair of shoes, what would a customer expect any pair of shoes to have? Soles, okay? Something to protect, protect keep their feet from having to hit the raw ground or step on a nail or something. What else? The expectation. Comfortable, you know, except when we go to the prom, Right? 
but generally want our shoes to be comfortable, to fit, maybe to have some durability, expected stuff. Now is when we start marketing. So now we take that basic product, we start augmenting it. We start adding stuff to it to make it different. So what will we do to a shoe to augment it, to make it have more appeal? Different colors or like different soles? Colors, fashion. Uh, we could differentiate soles. So one is a walking sole, one is a running, one is a rock climbing. We start um, adding bells and whistles and stuff to it. Put a swoosh on it. How could we sort of maximize the potential of that shoe? So now we've added our bells and whistles. We've created fashion. Our high heels have a red. What are those? Bolonics? Come on, you brand snobs. The um, high fashion Sex in the City shoes, they have the red soles. Bulimic? No, that's not. Uh, Manuel Bolonic? Anyway, 1000 bucks a pair. Okay. All right. So beyond adding the bells and whistles, the tangible stuff that makes our shoes different, how could we totally maximize the potential of that product in the mind of the customer? Okay, so we, um, we have celebrities wear them. That could maximize the potential. Uh, anything else? Okay, so um, get an idea of why customers really like the shoe and start thinking about that. Okay, what if after we sold the shoe... We contacted the customer in three months and offered to uh, replace that shoe, like a trade-in policy. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that change the way people thought about your shoe, make it a little bit different? Complimentary, like socks or something. Okay, send, add some socks. Uh, send them some socks later on. That might do it. Um, what, what in the way of customer service could we do that would... <laughs> knock the socks off the customer what I mean is there anything we could do if you buy a pair of shoes that isn't uh, real expensive but would give somebody a really cool experience yeah um, I don't know maybe like offer like a you know money back guarantee if they you know because a lot of people buy shoes online now mm-hmm. like the store I'm trying yeah yeah, or, or wear them free for 30 days. And if, if you like them at the end of 30 days, we'll send you a bill. Okay, that would be kind of daring, but that would change the way people think. So, so the idea here is that when we're creating a brand, we are wrapping this kind of generic product or service with things that make it so different that a customer is going to prefer our brand and what we want is to reduce the decision making about buying 
their next pair of shoes. We don't want them to even think about anything else except our brand. We want a monopoly. Now, obviously, you know, we have shoes for different purposes, and one shoemaker can't serve everything, but you kind of get the idea, right? Another thing that the textbook talked about, but I feel very strongly we need to spend more time talking about, is the idea of selling. And I'm talking about personal selling. Just by show of hands, how many of you, when you graduate from here, your dream job is going to be in sales? Anyone? Not a surprise. The answer I get is, well, I didn't spend $75,000 on an education to become a salesman person, right? We don't think about it as a very desirable career path, especially when we're at an elite school that has a great reputation. We are probably all going to go into some sort of corporate setting and you know, work our way around the corporate structure. But let me just disrupt some of your thinking and say if any of you have career paths that are involved in marketing or product development or anything related to the revenue side, probably the best job you could get would be in sales. And I'm not suggesting that you take this job and think about it as a forever job, but two years or so of selling would be a terrific investment of your time. So why am I not crazy by suggesting this? Why, what would be the benefit? And I'm talking direct sales where you're knocking on doors or you're calling customers or you're showing up at a customer's place. Why would two years or so be a great foundation? You learn what people respond to. You get unbelievable experience in learning about the customer and customer behavior. You learn how to think on your feet, how to negotiate, how to counter objections. You learn from the inside the engine that runs a company. Sales are the engine. Obviously, we have to have good products. We have to have good engineering. You know, we have to have good stuff. But it's when the cash register rings and a sale is made that the company moves, whether it's an inch, a mile, whatever. You are working in the engine room of the organization. And so that experience becomes really, really valuable as you move around in the organization. The other thing it does is that most sales jobs are outside the company. So you are interfacing with lots of people outside of your own company. And everybody you interface with is also 
a potential place that maybe you would want to work if you don't want to work for the company you're working with. Sales is also relatively independent from a supervisory standpoint. I mean, you have to answer to a boss or so on, but if you're working in sales, you're kind of in business for yourself because you're, you're out there, you're figuring out a lot of times your, your weekly schedule, who you're calling on, and so on. So that's my sales pitch about sales. It's something to really consider, not to mention that very often the people on the sales force are making more money than a lot of people in the corporate office. So if we don't like the term sales, let's call it one-on-one marketing, or let's call it business development, okay? Maybe that's a little better. Yeah, maybe it's a little easier to tell mom and dad, you know, I'm in business development. The important thing in today's world, too, is that selling is really about relationship making. What we want in a sales team now, talk about a uh, from a managerial standpoint, looking down on the sales function, more and more, we're not looking as much to quantity of customers, but rather quality of customers. So we would rather have five customers where we are getting 20% of their business than having... 100 customers where we're getting 1% of their business. Much harder to manage 100 customers, much more costly to cover them. The selling world is now looking to the productivity and the profitability of customers. So you'll hear a lot of companies talk about calling their customers, calling the list of customers. So Every year they look at their, you know, thousand customers and they may lose, they may fire a hundred of them because it's just not profitable enough. You know, what I want to do is figure out who the best ones are, do everything we can to retain them, and then try to sell them more stuff or cross-sell or deepen the relationship. Another important part of selling and marketing is this idea of the lifetime value of a customer. This is an old study, but you know, numbers are still kind of interesting. What do you think the lifetime value of a Domino's pizza <coughs> customer is? Lifetime value of a Domino's pizza customer. One person who buys Domino pizzas over their lifetime. On the nose. Did you read that study somewhere? Yeah, that was the number. And that's an old study, though. So it might be 7,000 now. Lifetime value. So, so what that means is that if you're the manager of a Domino's, And a customer comes in or calls up, and it's a $9 pizza. And the order gets screwed up somehow. And that customer is really ticked off. And you're the manager, you say, well, 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 it's just 9 bucks. 
No, it's not nine bucks. It's five thousand bucks because that order was really screwed up. That customer may not last a lifetime as a Domino's customer. So, so think about all the different categories of things that you buy on a regular basis and look at the lifetime value. So what we have is this increasing value. So, you know, at the very beginning of a customer relationship, and you can't see it, but actually we might be in the hole by 100 bucks. Customer acquisition cost. It may cost you $100 in advertising in order to get a customer in your door. But once you get that customer in the door, you know, you start out with some sort of base profit. And then every year you find that in the second year you might be able to get this customer to buy different stuff. Um, it's less expensive to have that customer, right? And then in the third year, that customer is starting to refer people to you. So now you have that customer plus two or three of his or her referrals. And so over time, what did I do? Over time, okay. So over time, you can see how how valuable that customer becomes. So I'll go back to one of the things. Once we have a customer. And especially today with, um, you know, customer uh, CRMs, customer relationship management systems. So once that customer's in a database, it's next to nothing to send that customer an email saying, hey, you're a loyal customer. Uh, if you come in the next 10 days, you get 10% off. So it's really inexpensive to reach that customer once you have them. So customers become very, very profitable. How many of you have watched a commercial on TV and you go, what was that? What are they doing here? What is the product? Um, it's amazing how much advertising, in my opinion, is just frittered away um, without being meaningful in terms of developing brand or creating urgency or anything like that. Most advertising is supposed to answer three questions. What's the benefit of the product or service? Who's it for? In other words, what segment is it trying to reach? And how's it different? How are we better? So going back to the first slide, you know, what is the uh, difference that our product has as 
contrasted to other products that might be similar. It also has to be believable. The ad has to be somehow relevant to the customer we're trying to reach. And we have to own the strategy. So how many people um, can tell me what that little lizard is doing on TV? The, so that's a Geico. Everybody agree? So they own that. They own that strategy, right? Uh, how about that duck? Eh, flat. Yeah. They, now, I got to say, re really? I mean, a duck for insurance? I'm still not getting that connection, but we all connect with it, right? We all remember it. And we all remember the name of the company. So that's okay, I guess. Um, the other thing we have to do with advertising, and our book kind of ends on the idea of, of integration, marketing integration. So the advertising that we see has to be consistent with everything else that we're doing in terms of marketing. Because remember, advertising is just one little thing in the overall marketing strategy. So it's got to fit in terms of image, message, everything. And for advertising to be effective, it's got to have legs. It takes, in general, and I have no research to cite this, but generally accepted that it takes five times to see some, an ad before you really associate with the product. So the first four times you saw the duck with Affleck, if I asked that the same question, you probably wouldn't have. But the fifth time, you would have said Affleck. So we need a lot of uh, impressions in order to have it sink in here. And even more so today with social media and what you all are doing right now, looking at your phones and so on. Again, what's an estimate of the number of impressions, branding impressions that we get on a daily basis. How many, in a 24-hour period, how many different brand impressions do you get? Not that you understand them, but that you're exposed to. So like, think about riding your bike to campus. How many signs do you see? You're driving here turning on the TV in the morning, looking at your phone like you're doing right now. Thank you. Um, how many impressions do you think we get in a day? Hundreds. Thousands. Yeah, it is freaking amazing. How many? So how do we get 
you know, how do we stand out? Well, one of the ways we stand out is through longevity. Because if we keep the message consistent over time, eventually our message is going to rise above and, you know, we call this clutter, we call it noise, but the longevity is going to help us rise above the other 4,999 that we're going to be seeing every, every day. Another thing that we can use as marketers as opposed to advertising is publicity and public relations. So I think I saw in somebody's signature that there's someone in the class involved in campus public relations or external relations or something. Anybody? Did I dream that? Okay. All right. Public what is public relations? The relationship you have with the public? Mm, no, that's Maybe a good start. Yeah, that's kind of general, but not wrong. Anybody else? Favorable relations with someone outside of the company. Favorable relations with somebody out of the company. Like media or... Not dating. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's like, yeah, so public relations is how the company is represented to the public by other people by people other than the company itself. So it's very different than advertising. With advertising, we write all the words, we pick the image, we pick the magazine or newspaper or TV. We have total control over what the public sees. With public relations, Usually we hire somebody who will contact a newspaper and say, uh, Emory Riddle is ho holding an open house for new students. Uh, we think it would be interesting to the general public. Um, here's a press release giving you the details. And here, Mr. Reporter, uh, we hope that you will run this as an article in newspaper. So we have a little bit of control over that. But the decision to run that press release is not ours, but the newspapers. And the way it is presented, we have no control over. So in a, you know, maybe in a real negative sense, that reporter reports Emory Riddle, desperate for students. Open house this weekend. <laughs> Free hot dogs. You know, we have no control over that. We gave the press release to the newspaper, but the newspaper can cover it any way they want. But in a more positive way, we can use public relations to enhance our brand. And the reason that public relations becomes so powerful is that, let me get to 
it's written by somebody else. So if somebody else says that we have a good product or service in a review or in a passing comment, it's much more believable than if it's in an advertisement that we have paid for. So obviously public relations we introduce and we try to manage, we try to create favorable information about our company, we give it to people that we think are going to write or feature our company in a good way, but once we hand that off to the media, we have zero control over how it's portrayed. If it's portrayed well, it's invaluable. It's hard to put a price tag on it. And I'll give you an example of how this worked for me as a, an entrepreneur. So one of the things I, I did many years ago was I opened up a, a retail store that um, sold wallpaper. We sold, you know, interior design wallpaper. And um, so when I opened the store, um, I spent a lot, pretty good budget on developing 30-second commercials because wallpaper is very vis uh, visual. So we shot video in the store with all the different patterns and you know, shoppers walking up and down the aisle, and they were very happy, and they were buying stuff, you know. And we ran the uh, grand opening, ran these ads for a week. Spent a lot of money on the production and a lot of money on buying the media. And we did well. I mean, we had people coming in. It wasn't like it was a bust. So... Almost the same time, um, the newspaper, local newspaper, called me up and said, hey, we see you opened a, a wallpaper store. Can we send over a reporter to interview? I said, well, of course. So this reporter comes over and uh, spent about half an hour talking about the, the store, and uh, it was very nice, and um, didn't think much of it. And I thought, well, you know, it'd be great if this you know, appears, you know, there's a big home section in the, papes, in the paper. be great. So uh, about three weeks later, uh, I'm at home on a Sunday morning, and that's the biggest paper of the week, and I'm going through, and I go through, through the, you know, the home decor section, and I think, wow, you know, is, my, is there going to be an article? Nothing. Turn the section on the front page of the business section is this article about my, our store. And with the, with the photo of the store, but the, um, the article was about the business model because it was kind of different. It was, it was a different way to sell wallpaper. Rather than looking through catalogs, we actually had the stuff in the store you could take home with you. That was the article <coughs> about how this is a different way to buy wallpaper. Didn't talk about all the different designs and the 
you know, designers and, you know, all the, all the pretty stuff was about the nuts and bolts of the business. I said, oh, poop, you know, what a waste. Although it didn't cost me anything. But so we were open at noon on Sundays. And so I drive to the store. And I get the parking lot. The parking lot is loaded, overloaded with people. We sold more on that Sunday from this article that I had no control over, that had nothing to do with the pretty patterns we had. And it proved to me that, you know, public relations can be pretty powerful. And it cost me zero. That, that was a zero-cost thing. So with public relations, though, generally you hire somebody to help you write the stuff that you want the publications to feature. So in a sense, it's not free. You hear the term all the time, public relations, publicity is free. If you're doing it right, it's really not free. You're, you're, it's going to cost you something to try to shape it. But it is much less expensive than pure paid-for advertising, especially with what are generally the results of a good public relations uh, strategy. So um, we don't have to talk about press releases, but. In the realm of public relations, we also do things like events or contests, things that will create publicity. So, I mean, for instance, just brainstorming, Emory Riddle, they could hold a uh, paper airplane contest for all the kids in elementary schools in the Prescott area. Paper, airplane, you know, long, furthest, highest, so on. Um, that would get press coverage. It would be relatively inexpensive to produce. And it would create awareness in the community, at least, about Emory Riddle. Maybe it would get picked up by a national news organization as something, if it was unique enough. So now, maybe you show up on NBC Nightly News. And therefore, students in Iowa might see that and go, Emory Little, I'm going to take a look at that. So we have all kinds of, you know, different things. How many of you would kill to drive the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Come on. Now, there's more than one of you. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, okay? There isn't a city that that Wienermobile shows up in that doesn't cover it on TV, on in the newspaper, every time that frickin' thing drives into a town, there are people taking pictures of it, 
kids are, you know, want to stand next to it. It's a $150,000 vehicle, but they are getting millions and millions of dollars worth of coverage. I think they have four of them now. But that's sort of the idea behind public relations and publicity. So let me finish up with this brand thing. So this is based on science. So science, to, uh, so behavioral scientists, neuroscientists, I believe at Berkeley, wanted to understand branding from a, a brain standpoint. So they picked McDonald's to study. And when we, what do we think of with McDonald's? Boom. Golden arches, right? What these researchers figured out is that that brand is really a lot of different things that are all brought together. They call them nodes. So the McDonald's brand is built on a node that people related to fun kids and family. That's one little behavioral node. Another one is value. So people associate McDonald's with good value. Uh, they have certain products. They have a certain consistency of, of quality, a level of service. And then, before we get to brands, even their social involvement is part of their brand. What goes into all of these nodes are these things like, you know, it's fairly hassle-free. Usually it's good tasting. Usually it's hot. Usually it's fresh. Sub-brands are Egg McMuffin, the Big Mac, uh, the different products go into this product node. Um, Ronald McDonald, you know, with kids. Ronald scares the heck out of most kids, actually. But I don't know. My daughter was terrified of that thing. Um, but, you know, they have the, all the toys. They have a playground now. But even their social involvement, the Ronald McDonald house is definitely oriented towards families and kids. So even their social involvement builds into their brand. So what we're looking at here is that a brand is not just one thing. A brand is lots of things that have to work together and they have to be consistent, right? So for instance, um, What if somebody at McDonald's had the bright idea of offering veal scallopini <coughs> at a McDonald's? Didn't, wouldn't fit. Wouldn't fit, right? Um, so it has to be consistent um, with the brand. So let's also looking at the idea of you maybe coming up with some sort of brainstorm of a product or service, you would want to build a brand 
around you know, having a team to execute. You want to build visibility. You want to have good customer service. You want quality. You want a lot of thought to go into what, what comes from this idea into a product and also your top management team. So building on that, we want our customer service to have a human touch, have some easy accessibility, be responsive. We want to be vis visible in the community, go out speaking, create some publicity. Our team you know, has to have passion. Our top management team has to know about what the product or service is all about. We have to build systems. We have to improve our product or service along the line. And so, you know, this is just a, a way to apply the idea of branding into something that's new and doesn't have a brand, but we're going to start building on our brand.